Why the covenant? I don't think that was really even fleshed out very well. Why didn't they call it code of honor or even the interpreter? The original title was the interpreter. And for reasons I'm not sure of, they changed it. I wish they had kept the original title. Number one, it's a better title. Number two, way better it, would, it, way better. It, would allow, it would allow for more psychological development with the interpreter himself, spending time with him, which, which the film does. But I mean, I think he's the more interesting of the two characters in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it would give him more screen time. The Covenant is too baggy and generic a title. You almost expect it to be the title for a horror film or something, right? Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Bo is Afraid and The Covenant, starting with Bo is Afraid. Wow, Mike, this is such a house of mirrors kind of a movie. And going into it, I thought, what a strange, strange title. It was ready to go see it just because Joaquin Phoenix was in it. And I've seen things this director has done before, and I know he likes to surprise people. But three hours, I mean, I had to like plan what day I was going to commit three hours to something I knew would be super weird. What was your experience going in? Uh, essentially the same. Uh, the director, Ari Aster, is best known for a film called Midsummer, which came out in 2019, which which I either, uh, liked it, actually. And it has it has quite a following, I think. People do talk about it. That film has some connections to this one. In talking about this film, Bo is Afraid, the director, Aster, who's also the writer, has used the expression nightmare comedy. <laughs> and and I, th- I think he's in, I, I, w- I wish the film itself were as short as that description. I mean, that, that is the major problem here. This film, folks, has a running time of 179 minutes. And, uh, you know, somebody who might think they, they love every minute of it, it, well, I'm not that person, but somebody who loves every minute of it might say, well, but it's under three hours. And I say, yeah, by one minute it is. That is the major, major problem here. Walking Phoenix, you know, really fine actor. And, and the premise of the film actually is very promising. So I went in with those expectations as you did. I blocked out the day for it and, and went to see it. And the thing is, you know, the premise is essentially we've all had the proverbial bad day. And, you know, there's so many jokes about this. You wake up in the morning, but you, you overslept because the alarm clock was bust. And then, you know, had a lousy breakfast and you're pulling out of the driveway and run over the family dog. And then as if that weren't bad enough, you hit the street and somebody hits your car and then you get to the, the job. And and your boss says, guess what? You're fired. And then, you know, take it from there, right? Just one thing after another. Now, the title character here, the bow, <laughs> has every day like that. So it's a bum life, if you will. And it's taken to a, absurd lengths, absurd extremes. And Marie and I will talk about this at extreme length, I guess, <laughs> to honor the film. But the problem is, in small doses, the film can be very effective. It, it just puts you in a sort of fever dream of what this poor guy is up against. And, and, and you can do some armchair psychoanalysis in terms of his problems and his family connections. All of that should be engaging, I would say. The problem is it, it, it hits that and then stays in that groove. And, it, and you know, and it's, it's that sort of picaresque story of, of one adventure or misadventure after another. And if I watched like 10 minutes at a time, I'd say, yeah, this is really holding my interest. But put all that together and it's excruciating. I was ready for, for, for inpatient treatment somewhere after, after seeing this film. So let me hand it back to you on this score because uh, although you and I all often talk about superhero movies being overly long, at least for our taste. And so it's sort of a a mantra for us to do that or to laugh that something's only two and a half hours. A film like this one, I think what happened, here's my armchair psychoanalysis. I think what happened is Midsummer really did well and and critically got a lot of attention. That can go to your head. And I don't know that this director whatsoever, I've 
read about him, but but so this is just my projection onto him. My feeling is all that acclaim can kind of be a heady experience. You go to make your next film and you have the budget and you have the wherewithal and you just let it go. And there's something to be said for the old studio system. Much as we malign the old studio bosses, those cranky guys who, you know, aren't always very well spoken and they're really tough and all that. You know what? They wouldn't have allowed it through. They wouldn't have allowed that to happen. They would have said, yeah, you got it. You got the germ of a good idea here. Can you keep it to 100 minutes or even 120, whatever? Marie, let me pick your brain on this one because this is where I think sometimes very much an auteurist I want to be on the director's side, let the director do whatever he or she wants, director's cut. Oh my goodness, I wish somebody had cut this film. Some mean-spirited <laughs> producer had cut it and sent it out into the world. What do you think? I do not like movies that go on for that long. I think you ha- really have to do something extraordinary. I do think visually there were a lot of extraordinary things. It was a very cool movie to look at. But you know, there were moments where they're just cringeworthy, just very difficult scenes to get through. I want to first talk about the director. I saw Midsummer, thought it was very disturbing, but I looked up his early short, which is called Munchausen, which tells you everything you need to know about Bo is Afraid, because it's about a, a woman whose son is about, it's a short, it's about a woman whose son is about to go off to college and to, you know, keep him with her, she poisons him, thinking that she's going to be able to, he's going to be able to recover it and ends up killing him. That kind of is a little bit of a foreshadowing of themes that he would take up in other things. But this film, Bo is Afraid, was supposed to be his directorial debut. So I'm with you, Mike. I think he had a little success with his other movies that came after the short I just mentioned. And I think it just went completely to his head. And I think he lost his mind. And I want to tell you that what happened after I was finished watching the movie, nobody moved. Everybody waited until every credit had gone. Because I think everybody was like, wait, what? There's got to be, there's They've got to come back, right? There's got to be more. And no, the lights came up and I got up, put my coat on. The guy behind me just, just went, well, like, I, but what? I mean, where, where do we, what? <laughs> just absolutely mind blown, but also speechless. But imagine, because you and I are never speechless. So so <laughs> imagine if at the end of the film, we sat through the credits and almost to, to keep drawing out that that connection to superhero movies, which it has nothing in common with really, but the connection that we sit through those credits, because we know there'll be what you all like to call the Easter egg. There'll be something at the end there. You want to stay to the, the, the bloody end of it. In this film, I think it was that sense of, huh, what? You know, that kind of moment of speechless. And I think at that point, the audience is just numb. I, I, th- I, think, I think we're just, you know, semi-conscious or something. And so we're just stuck in our seats for the duration of that film. We probably have bed sores at that point from how long we've been in the seats. <laughs> and so, Marie, what happens at the end of the film there is, can you imagine though, this is this is the real nightmare comedy. Can you imagine if there were an Easter egg at the end indicating there'd be a sequel? Oh, God. <laughs> think about that. <laughs> yeah, I think this movie actually unseats Eraserhead as the most disturbing thing I've ever seen. I, I told the guy behind me, it just went well, that I, I think I have brain damage. I mean, there's no, just I, so much weirdness in that movie. Well, but you know, I, th- I think, I mean, I use Eraserhead Head in, in courses I teach in, in avant-garde cinema and in, you know, introductory film courses, because it's one of the all-time great examples of that kind of film. But Eraserhead is so much better on so many levels. One is brevity. It's nine, 90 minutes. And where David Lynch plays that to advantage is there are things that really leave you dangling, like, huh, who's that? What's that? All that. But you know what? It plays out, not that it plays out fast. It's a very deliberate film, but it plays out in such a way that you are then left wondering after. Afterwards, this is a film that draws out all those same 
same elements to, as I said before, excruciating length. And at that point, ironically, it becomes less interesting in some ways. It just becomes kind of vexing, doesn't it? It's like, oh, oh, oh brother, what's that supposed to be? Or more of this. And you know, I'm getting at like emotionally, it starts to lose me. A racer head is, is a kind of fever dream and it stays with me. Uh, even as I describe it now, I'm thinking about it and visualizing it. This film does have some knockout visual imagery. And that's why, as I said before, if you watched a 10 minute scene or, or you had a still photo, it would be mesmerizing and it would really kind of creep you out that way. But here, ultimately, I was bored. And when I'm bored, I'm, I'm not afraid. I'm not creeped out. And, and I absolutely never look at my watch, but but mentally I'm, I'm kind of clocking it and, and thinking this is just going on far too long. Now, I didn't necessarily think that I, I was with the movie the whole way through until, you know, like I said, the end when I realized everybody was just sitting there kind of stunned. And that's really quite the achievement, by the way, to have people sit through three hours of your movie and then they, they aren't racing for the bathroom. They're still sitting there like, wait, you're not going to leave it there, right? You're not going to just leave it there. I, I did want to mention that there may be a appetite for this more lately because Nathan Lane described the movie as the Jewish everything everywhere all at once and an epic tale of guilt and codependence, the story of his life. What do you think about it in, in, in those terms? I think that's a terrific quotation, actually. And, and Nathan Lane is, is, is quite good. There's some good supporting actors in this. Patty LuPone, Nathan Lane, Stephen McKinley Henderson, Amy Ryan. Amy Ryan. It's got a good yeah, it's got a good cast. I mean, no complaints there. And they do help to to invigorate the film when they, when they appear on screen. But in terms of, Marie, what you keep describing, that, you know, sitting there with the audience and people just remaining in their seats, I think you should have been checking for the pulse. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm only half joking about that. I just think people are worn out by it and, and, and just kind of puzzled in a way that has them sitting there wondering what, wondering what was that. I, again, I don't know if this film will, it will probably have a cult following. And all the things we're giving as negatives will be spun as positives. But I don't see it having a, a lasting uh, and certainly a larger audience at all. I don't see it really as a film that'll be a, if it's a cult favorite, it will be just for a handful of people. I mean, there are other films like Eraserhead really had a genuine cult following from when it was a midnight movie. A Bell is Afraid has been playing for, for, as we speak, it's been playing for a few weeks. It's, it's you know, surviving that way. Let's put it this way. it's It's been playing in theaters for more than three hours. And, and, and so that's a good sign. I suppose. But what do you think, Ray? Because we don't, we usually we shy away from crystal ball gazing, but this is one where I would feel fairly confident in saying, I don't see this film as having that kind of lasting cultural impact. I think it might garner an Academy Award nomination, you know, just for the acting of Joaquin Phoenix. He's terrific in this. Possibly a visual effects award nomination. But yeah, I think I think this is going to be largely forgotten about. But, you know, before we completely dismiss it, I do want to say I do think there are certain things about it that I think are kind of brave and universal. One is that dream that you're stuck in where you're trying to get home and you can't. And the character himself who suffers from extreme anxiety, whatever's happening on screen, it's always the worst thing that the character Bo can imagine. And then the fears start to compound and overlap and make one another worse. And it's like everything you've ever worried about in your life, that everybody's mad at you, that whatever happens to him, it's always, you know, you can think of like 10 things that could be the worst thing that could happen. And it goes for the 11th thing every time. It's like his world manifests his fears. Well, you're absolutely right about that. And it, it truly is an urban nightmare, among other things. This guy, in terms of, you know, violence in the streets and just noise and strangers coming into his apartment. Mm -hmm. And and as if you're right, if we have like all of us, like a top 10 list of anxiety inducing things, this would be like number 11 that can be added to it. 
So what happens though is then he, when he does go on the road, it's because there it is essentially a journey film. He wants to return to to his mother, and then so a lot of the traveling actually is in more pastoral settings. I mean, out into the woods, if you will, into the woods, and it does become a kind of fairy tale at some level. It really becomes dreamlike that way. But see, that's again a, a case where it's a real problem, I think, in that once you start wandering in the woods, it can be a long hike. And you know, if we gave a synopsis, you and I've kind of skirted and, and, and danced around the plot per se, but if we went into a, a three-hour synopsis of the three-hour film, it, it would be that simply it's this happens, that happens, on and on that way. And again, that's where a really tough editor and a really tough producer and a tough everybody else could say, look, you're a talented director, but enough is enough, you know, because quite honestly, I'm being really kind of blunt about this in the sense that as you get further into the story, you don't really learn more about the character. You know what I mean? You don't really have like a deeper insight. It's just reinforcement on the same few psychological points that the film is making. And that's, again, where I'm ultimately bored by it rather than intrigued by it. I thought it was going more for the idea of you being trapped in his mind and his world. So there was no resolution of plot because it wasn't really clear when you were watching it, whether these things were reality or figments of his imagination, the way he saw the world. I mean, Mike, could there be a worse neighborhood to live in? And let's let's assume this is the best he could do. Uh, I mean, my God, what a horrible place. We will never complain about any place we ever lived <laughs> again. But Marie, you know, ultimately it's a moot point. And whether he's actually on this journey, okay, the, the, and, and such bizarre things happen, you got to wonder. But whether he's actually in it or it's all a trip in his head, ultimately that's a moot point because either way, it's not going anywhere. You know what I mean? It's it's like if you're trapped in somebody's head and they keep obsessing over the same few things or same 11 things, that's just going to circle around and around. So whether it's just circling in psychic space or in actual physical space, ultimately there's no difference for the viewer. You know, I mean, I tend to think these things are happening. That, that's my take. I tend to see this as the world he actually lives in. But you raise a valid point because of his severe anxiety syndrome, whatever you want to call it. To what extent is this all internal? And he's projecting it out and we're sharing that that vision. Uh, yeah, I, initially, I was kind of hooked on that. I was kind of intrigued by exactly what you brought up. Is this really happening? But you know what? Once I start to lose patience with a film that way, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I, you know, I, I'm watching every frame because they're beautiful frames, but but I'm checking out on another level. I think in terms of trying to capture the experience of being that anxious, it was different. I can honestly say that I've never seen this movie before. Would you want to see it again? uh, No, it's a movie that you watch once, but I am glad that I saw it once. I did think it was good enough. I, I think I liked it better than you did. Now, they originally titled it Disappointment Boulevard. You know, I don't think you can get people to go see a movie called Disappointment Boulevard. (laughs) (laughs) What, they don't like boulevards? They don't like boulevards? (laughs) There's also a backstory to how he was raised that explains why he is so anxious about literally everything. And it gets into this far-fetched stuff, very Eraserhead in my mind. The whole, we won't get into specifics, but the whole thing about the attic just seems, it, it strains credulity. But it's played for shock value, I think. What do you think, Mike? Did you think that was a satisfying, you know, resolution to those questions? 
Well, we have, we have to be careful to avoid spoilers, uh, obviously, but I, I think at that point in the film, it does want to truly shock us. It wants to jolt us. And for the semi-conscious audience members, maybe to get them sitting up in the seat again. <laughs> and, and so I, uh, to the film's credit, it's trying to do something a bit different or a bit more at that point. I mean, you know what I mean? Don't you see, even if you're not convinced by the resolution, it's trying to juice it a bit. What do you think? I think in the script, it's trying to give you something extra at that point. I would love to see how the script described the things going on on the screen. I think that would be very interesting. And whether they referenced other movies, like there's a scene near the end where he's being uh, called to explain himself, which to me seemed like it was boosted directly from Albert Brooks's movie, Defending Your Life. Uh, that may be a deliberate reference. I, I had a lot of time during the film to think about things like that. So yeah, I wonder if that was the case. I honestly don't know one way or the other. But again, you know, not that the film needs to be more conventional, but you can you can see actually think about someone like Albert Brooks, actually, that, that you know, his persona, right, oftentimes has a lot of anxiety built in. And, and there's a lot of comedy and kind of edgy, disturbing comedy sometimes built into that. But it's within a narrative framework that, yes, has brevity in its favor, but also has credulity in its favor, that this is something that actually happens, something you can care. And you don't feel like it's just the director just flying free, you know, just totally uh, out there. Uh, you sometimes need to put on the brakes a little bit, I would think. And and usually, I, I mean, I teach courses on, on avant-garde films. So believe me, I'm no stranger to strange narratives. But I think when you start getting to this running time and this extremity, all but that, but the real hardcore of, of cult followers are going to be there for you. So even I, who watch a lot of films like this, I have to say, even I was peeling off. Now, in terms of, there were some things about it that I thought were really well done, like some of the visuals. Very David Lynch-esque, actually, you know, the more I think about it. What would you have done to make this a better movie other than whittling it down to a more manageable size? I mean, you have Joaquin Phoenix and Parker Posey and all the, all those people that you mentioned. It should have been a better movie. Well, the, uh, you know, we're play doctor here. So as the play doctor, what I'd recommend here is you have a really good supporting cast. We've mentioned them by name already. And in terms of the roles they fill, whether a family member, a, a friend, whatever, you know, I don't want to spoil anything in the story, but as these other characters pop up, I think one possibility, and, and it would allow for the, not quite the three-hour length, but at least a long film, is to spend a little more time with, what I call quality time with, some of those supporting characters. How do you feel about this notion? Because they, when they pop up, sure, we're all sort of intrigued, like, oh, here, here's this mother, here's somebody else. But some of them just appear in, in vignettes, like a few scenes, or and, and you don't know quite what to make of that. I wouldn't want to take the story off on too many tangents, but these are characters who are central to his life. And I would think you could have a, a little more intense psychological dynamic there between him and these other characters. How do you feel about that? Because to me, some of them almost seem like set dressing after a while. Literally, I because the what, what I would have cut would have been a whole lot of the play in the woods. I think you could have cut that completely out, not missed a thing. But we need to move on to our next movie, which is The Covenant. So this is a Guy Ritchie film. And I will say the most Guy Ritchie thing about it is the lingering and lovingly shot scenes of violence. So it's set in Afghanistan. It has Jake Gyllenhaal playing a sergeant. He has an interpreter. He is injured. The interpreter carries him to safety. And now he has a debt of honor to repay. 
How's that for setting it up, Mike? What did I miss? Or what did I leave out? <laughs> well, actually, what, what you missed, ironically, was the film's full title, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Okay, Guy the Ritchie's The, official, the Covenant. No, and I'm not doing it just, just to joss, just to joke about it, but that is the actual title for it. it, was, it was, speaking of auteurist cinema, that on his own level, his own plane, if you will, Guy Ritchie more or less qualifies for that. Because you hear the name and you know what to expect. Mm-hmm. Think of it going all the way back to like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. You really think of the kind of ultra violence associated with him. This film, which I liked a lot more than I thought I would, this film is actually a bit of a departure for him because the earlier films of his are often violent for the sake of being violent. And it's violence as comedy. Not that I'm always laughing, but it's sort of that Quentin Tarantino quality Mm -hmm. of its extreme violence. And we're supposed to sort of laugh at it or just be engaged by it. And everything's kind of joking. Uh, You know, you don't take anything too seriously in a Guy Ritchie film. And yet this is a film that is much more earnest. It's much more sincere. It's much more conventional in a way that I think works for the story. And the feeling you and I have here is shared by, I think, most of the critics who reviewed, uh, I'll just call it The Covenant for brevity's sake, The Covenant when, when it came out. And Amy Nicholson, for instance, in reviewing this film from The New York Times wrote, quote, Sincerity is an unusual tone for director Guy Ritchie, who specializes in laddish shoot-em-ups, close quote. And, and, and that's exactly the way I felt about it, actually, is that when I went in to see it, as soon, you know, the, the, the weekend had opened, so I hadn't read too much about it, but just to go see it, I thought, this is a Guy Ritchie film? And, and I mean that as a compliment now, because the film actually is quite engaging in terms of the overall storyline. You know, you essentially have an American soldier, an Afghan interpreter, their interplay, and the fact that because the interpreter has put so much of his life on the line to work with the American, and we'll talk more about this, the risk that he runs, you know, as the Taliban starts to overrun the country. So the the plot point that is all essential is, you know, we need to get a visa to this guy. We need to get him out of the country. He and, you know, family and whatever, get them out of here. And that is really compelling in the film. You see the bond between the two of them. You see how difficult it is bureaucratically sometimes to get all the visas you'd like. And then, of course, ultimately, uh, just even if you can secure things like that, literally getting out of the country is, is no sure thing. And so this is where Guy Ritchie turns his skill set to advantage. He knows how to stage a shoot 'em up. And this is a shoot 'em up where it, it, it's not like I'm going to smirk as I'm watching it. I'm, re- I'm really emotionally bound up in it. You know, gosh, you know, the enemy's firing and you got to run here and there. Watch it at that level technically in terms of camera work, editing, all that pacing. And I think the film works quite well. Yeah, I think so too. And it wouldn't even have to be a Guy Ritchie movie for people to be intrigued by the story. We don't see a lot of movies made about Afghanistan or this particular kind of of a story. Jake Gyllenhaal is always really watchable, and I think he's really good in this. He brings that sort of earnestness that you believe in without the cockiness that you'd get from like a a Tom Cruise or even Daniel Craig. You know, there's something sort of everyman-ish about Jake Gyllenhaal. That said, I think some of the speeches are a little bit speechy maybe not as well written as I would have liked them to be. I mean, they they hit the note they're supposed to get, but I think the script itself actually kind of lags a couple of times. What did you think, Mike? Yeah, I agree very strongly with you. There's what I like to refer to as like on the nose or on the sleeve. I don't know. It's sort of weird to describe it that way. But but you've you've identified it perfectly, namely that the film makes us care about these two characters and there is some degree of complexity there in terms of, you know, Jake uh, Gyllenhaal is this former U.S. Army special ops guy. The interpreter, Ahmed, is played by Dar Salim, very good actor in this, actually. And so it works at that, that dramaturgical level, the bond between the two of them and so on. And there is some complexity in it in terms of, well, how do you define their relationship? And, and then, moreover, the interpreter's background. 
on the one hand, yes, he's working with the U.S., he's, he's on our side, he's a good guy, and his motivation, among other things, would be the Taliban had killed his son. So he has a very strong personal motive here. Uh, but by the same token, he's a former heroin trafficker, so, which is not an unusual occupation in that country. So, so he's got this kind of mixed bag of, of a background. That's all interesting. But to your point, and you absolutely hit it on, on the head here, the, the script itself tends to be so blunt that way. And Guy Ritchie, uh, besides directing, is the co-writer. So it's, it's on him, basically. You know, there are points that I would get watching the film, but it's speechy. There, there are moments where somebody squares off and says something that I already know, or I've been thinking, and it's like, it's overkill. It's too much at that point. And I think that's a real problem here. And there's a kind of overdetermination in the script. So I think it's actually quite well done technically in terms of, you know, how it's actually shot. And the essential story is strong. But yes, the on-the-nose scripting can be a problem. Secondly, and this is not surprising, secondly, the fact that when the Jake Gyllenhaal character goes on the offensive, if you will, or is it the defensive, whatever it is, he's running through the countryside, he has remarkably good aim. And I'll grant him that. He's always hitting the other side, you know, whereas their aim isn't always so good. And that's the sort of truism in so many movies, isn't it? Where, where like, you know, why he's mowing down the enemy and, and their bullets just sort of whiz by him for the most part. <laughs> but that's cinema, right? He's our right. guy. He's going to he's going to get through this. Yeah, there's something some sort of magical veil that keeps them from, you know, so they can make it to the end of the movie. Now, I want to take issue with the title, whether it's Guy Ritchie's The Covenant or just The Covenant. Why The Covenant? I don't think that was really even fleshed out very well. Why didn't they call it Code of Honor or even The Interpreter? The original title was The Interpreter. And for reasons I'm not sure of, they changed it. I wish they had kept the original title. Number one, it's a better title. Number two, way better it, would, it, it, way better. it would allow it would allow for more psychological development with the interpreter himself, spending time with him, which, which the film does. But I mean, I think he's the more interesting of the two characters in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it would give him more screen time. The Covenant is too baggy and generic a title. You almost expect it to be the title for a horror film or something, right? It doesn't sort of have that, that sense to it almost. It just hits the wrong notes there in that it... it makes me wander mentally. I'm thinking, well, the you know, the covenant, what kind of covenant? Yeah, it's more or less valid for this subject, but you could again think of it like a coven of witches or something. You know what I mean? It's almost like almost has those sense. So I think it's actually a title that is sort of misleading in the sense that it, it doesn't really let you know what this film is about. It really is about the interpreter. I think covenant also sounds it has a religious overtone. That yeah. It's not borne yeah. out by the movie at all. And maybe the reason they didn't want to stick with the interpreter is because it sounds like that character is the star when it's Jake Gyllenhaal. But, you know, there's a argument to be made that Jake Gyllenhaal is in, a, in his own way an interpreter, even though he's not he's not the interpreter. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think it should be more about the interpreter in some ways. And, and, you know, you don't have to cut Jake Gyllenhaal from the screen. He can have all the scenes he wants. But my interest is actually in the interpreter as much as anything. And, and, and you're right. You can you, you can use that title, the interpreter, and think about how Jake Gyllenhaal is a kind of an interpreter. He's got to, he's got to talk to the military brass. The, the people above him and explain this and try to get clearances, yada, yada. But he also then, once he's in Afghanistan, going on this dangerous mission, he got to do that. Also, we haven't really talked about this, but he does have like a wife and family kind of thing. He's got to like ex- explain or interpret to them. So he's got he's got a lot of translating to do here. And, and so I, th- I think you could give it that title and an audience would be happy with it because I think just on an intuitive level, you would get it. Uh, with The Covenant, I don't get it at all. <laughs> and it is sort of unnerving to spend the first half of the movie hoping that he gets out of Afghanistan, Jake Gyllenhaal, because he's injured. And like I said, the interpreter basically drags him to safety. And then you've got this 
second part of the movie, which is about him wanting to do the right thing by getting the interpreter out. So he has to go back. And that's that part right there is where my interest, I, it was a little uneven because it's like, God, you just got out of there. You know, now you've got to go back to get to get your buddy because, you know, you don't ever want to leave anybody behind. But I, I felt like the transition between the two storylines was a little problematic. Did you? I thought it was abrupt. Maybe the word abrupt. problematic. Yes, abrupt. Is, don't you think it was abrupt? It's just like he's made his decision. Snap. Well, think about his wife and family. Think about this. Like in a matter of minutes, right? He's he's mm-hmm. going to do it. He's back that way. And I guess again, in terms of what we call like the, the magic bullets in movies, yes, he can be hit and injured and so on. But that's the one time they get him, right? So 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 Maria, if he goes back, he's he's going to you know get his mission done there. It, it it is a conventional film that way. So yeah, I think the film is a bit disappointing for the reasons we've identified. But again, I think it's technically well-made. And in terms of the tone, uh, I do give credit to Guy Ritchie to make a a movie that's not ironic, that's not nudge-nudge that way, that really does give you a worthwhile story. I think that's very much to his credit. Yeah, I think one of his better ones, I would say. But that does bring us to the end of our episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes at atmhcc.podbean.com. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.